begin with, we are going to begin a brand new series today. Uh, we uh, certainly welcome each of you. If you are a first-time guest here, uh, we uh, are grateful you're here. Uh, I was sitting there a moment ago and I was thinking, you know, sometimes we forget how odd it must seem when it's offering time at East Point if you're a first-time guest. <laughs> Do you remember the first time you came here and that happened? Everybody broke out in applause. You're thinking, what in the world's going on? Well, I, I love that about our church. It's not just that, but I, I love the fact that you worship in spirit and in truth. And it's a, it's a blessing. We're going to talk about the spirit side of that for the next few weeks. That is, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. We're going to dive into this. I call this series, The Helper. The Helper, and it comes right out of John chapter 14. If you want to look there with me. John 14, and beginning in verse 16. And I will pray the Father... And he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. Isn't that a great passage? I want you to do this with me. I want you to turn to your neighbor and tell him, you have a helper available. Now, I want you to know this because uh, the truth is, and I kind of feel like given the course of the songs, the course of the songs that we've, we've uh, sung today, and Brother Mac, he doesn't often know, you know, what my message is. He just asks the Lord to lay on his heart certain songs and, and, and leads us in worship. And, but it's neat when the Lord just kind of ties things together. So I want you to know this today. I want you to know if you're hurting, and I know a lot of our people are, Maybe you received news of a loved one having health issues. We had a few people this week diagnosed with cancer. Maybe you heard about somebody close to you going through a very difficult time. We had a, a loss in, uh, in our church. Someone who used to be a member here who passed this week. And we have another one sitting in ICU today who is uh, about to go on into eternity. So people are hurting today. Maybe you are going through some trouble on your job. Maybe you're having difficulties in your marriage. Maybe you're a young couple whose plans and dreams have not worked out like you thought they should. I want you to know something. You're not alone. Amen? Amen? Not alone. The amazing thing to me is that Jesus would look at us and say, you know something, I can't leave you without a helper. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to leave you without somebody who will be there for you and be there with you. No matter where you are and what you go through, you'll have a helper. That helper... The word there in the text is the word parakletos. It's translated comforter in other passages and some of the versions that you might have even. And it's talking about someone who comes alongside you, is your advocate. Somebody who stands up with you and for you and assists you and helps you and gets us through. And quite honestly, sometimes, ladies and gentlemen, we just feel like we cannot go on. You ever been there? And the Holy Spirit comes alongside and says, yeah, you can I'll help you. I'll help you. You can get through this with him. And so I want to talk to you today on this subject. This is sort of, uh, we would call this maybe pneumatology 101. Pneumatology is a fancy theological term we throw out there that just means the study of the Holy Spirit. The first part of it, the word pneuma, is a reference to the wind or the breath. Literally, pneuma when it refers to the Holy Spirit, it's talking about the wind of God or the breath of God. So pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit. Now while I called this 101, I got to tell you we're going to go a little deeper than the beginning of, the, uh, of it. Uh, today, somewhere in the course of the next, um, oh I don't know, a few minutes to the next few hours. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Say, hey, preacher, you preach as long as you want. I leave at 12. I just... <laughs> it never bothers me when people look at their watches, but when they do this, it's a, <laughs> it's a real concern. We're going to talk about things like the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit today. 
And we're going to just touch on some things. We're going to spend the next few weeks, so I'm not going to give it all to you today, but we're going to talk a little bit about uh, sort of an introduction here concerning the Holy Spirit. When I think of His being a helper, I'm reminded sometimes of how we sometimes call on God to help us with things that really we ought not call on Him to help us with. You know what I mean? It's like the man trying to explain the empty donut box at his house when he was put on a diet for his health. And he was trying to explain to his wife, now honey, you don't understand. See, when I left this morning for work, I told the Lord, would he please help me? If it was okay with him, would he help me and give me a parking place right up front at the donut shop? <laughs> and, she, and, and she said, well, what did he do? He did that, he said. And sure enough, I, he said, I found it. It was right in front of the donut shop this morning. It was a miracle. And I only had to drive around the block seven times, he said. <laughs> Sometimes we blame God and want God to help us with things we really should not. It's not nothing against donuts, I'm just saying. So what, what should be our approach? Let, let's begin with the person. Let's recognize. I want to speak to you today on the topic of the reality of the Holy Spirit. The reality of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to begin by recognizing his person. Let's talk about him as the person He's the third person of the Godhead. Now let me say this. We don't always uh, realize what we do sometimes, but he is not an it. Can I get an amen? amen. He. It, it, the word of God uses a masculine pronoun, he, when referring to the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. One and the same. Different terms that are used. One and the same. The third person of the Godhead. We have the Father. We have the Son. We have the Holy Ghost. Now the Trinity sometimes is very difficult to explain and understand. I, I know that. Part of the difficulty anytime we deal with the subject of God, when we deal with theology, and we try to understand the infinite God, we are using a finite mind and, and, and that poses a problem. It's very difficult for us. So I've heard people use illustrations like the egg and they say you see the egg has three parts but it's only one egg has the shell, the white, and the yolk. And I've heard people use themselves. Like, for instance, I am a son. I have a mother that lives not far from here. Many of you have been praying for her, and I appreciate that, her having had some strokes recently. And, and I, so I am a son. I am a husband. Secondly, in my role in this life, my dear wife is seated right over here. And, and then I am a father. I'm a dad. So, so I play different roles, if you will, yet I'm only one person. Some have used that. One of my favorites, and I've used it here before, is that of, of mathematics. Many people use addition when they ought to be using multiplication when they think about God. They say, it doesn't make any sense to me, Pastor, because 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 3. Yeah, but 1 times 1 times 1 only equals 1. We've accepted that, we learned that, and so somewhere our reasoning has to match up with and meet up with this thing called faith. And the scriptures cannot be explained any other way except to say that the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, is the third person of the Godhead. He's mentioned along with the Father and the Son at the end of Matthew, chapter 28, verse 19. He is mentioned in areas uh, of the scriptures that deal or in ways that he is referred to as a person. For instance, he teaches, he speaks, he searches, he testifies, he reveals. These are things that influences and forces cannot do. So while he is powerful, he is not a force. While he is influential, he is not an influence. Can I get an amen? He's a person. He is God. And that is difficult sometimes for us to fully comprehend. We think about the many works of the Holy Spirit and, and that will be some of which uh, we study, some of, of what we're going to study over the next few weeks. So I'm not going to rattle off all of the things that he does and try to give that to you today uh, because we'll approach some of those individually and some of those in small groups. But I do want to prove to you that the scriptures teach that he is indeed God. And in Acts chapter 5, if you'll look there with me, Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, we have the story that many of you are probably familiar with, Ananias and Sapphira. Now, Ananias and Sapphira were trying to follow something they saw Barnabas do. If you read early on in the book of Acts, you find that one of the things that they did, many of the members of the early church, they had sold off properties that they had, and they brought the proceeds to the church, 
so the church could minister to people as there was a need. It was not something God told them to do, but it was something that they were moved to do. And so Barnabas was one that did that. Ananias and Sapphira saw this. And so they went and sold a piece of land, came back with the money, set it down in front of the apostles and basically said, hey, we're going to give everything we got off that land. Only they lied about what they actually sold the land for. They kept back a portion of it. And so here we have the scripture that says in verse 1, but a certain man named Ananias, I'm in Acts 5 verse 1, but a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira his wife sold a possession. And he kept, he kept back part of the proceeds, but his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now, you might want to underline that in your Bible. I have mine highlighted. You ought to always come, by the way, with some way to make note of what God shows you in the Scriptures. Would you agree with me? So you can borrow a pen or paper. If you're one of those, like I was throughout high school and college, do you have something I can borrow? I need a pencil and paper. Then we try to supply you with the paper, but we can't help you much with a highlighter. Uh, so uh, the, the, the Bible says to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the price of the land for yourself. While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Now in this text, Peter is very clear that the Holy Spirit has been lied to. And then he calls the Holy Spirit God in the same text, the very next verse. Well, we could read in other passages of Scripture that deal with something similar. I find it interesting that uh, concerning the birth of our Savior. Now keep this in mind. We often refer to God the Father. God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But we often do not stop to realize that God the Holy Spirit and God the Father are one in the same. For the fact said, the, the fact is that the scriptures say in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the Father. Can I get an amen? amen? So there are many other things like this that we could look at in the scriptures that remind us that the Holy Spirit is indeed God. Another attribute that he is a person and not just an influence is the fact that he can be blasphemed against. That's an attribute that only can happen to a person and literally to God. To God. So what exactly does this mean when the Bible talks about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? I've heard it argued and people have said, well, pastor, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is when people reject Jesus. Well, let me just find out something because I happen to be one who heard that Jesus loved me and died for me and I left church that day and did not receive Jesus as my Savior until the following week. So when I finally got saved that following week in children's church, did the Lord forgive me for having rejected his call to salvation the week before? The answer is yes. How many of us would probably say, and I'm not going to ask for lifted hands, but how many of us would say, you know, I didn't respond when I first heard the gospel. I rejected that. And then later I got saved. So if the rejection of Jesus is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and can have no forgiveness, how could you ever be saved? So that is not the answer. The rejection is not the answer. So what is it then? Well, the scripture says in Matthew chapter 12, I'm going to begin reading in verse 24. So read with me or bear with me. Verse 24. Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub. That's a name, of course, attributed to the devil, to Satan. The ruler of the demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
Or how shall or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he finds uh, first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house he who is not with me is against me and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad therefore I say to you every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven men anyone who speaks a word against the son of man it will be forgiven him but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit it will not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come so it is as some people call it the unpardonable sin that the Bible speaks of now let me pause a moment with you because the only reference to the unpardonable sin is what Jesus makes in relation to this event. Years ago I began to wonder. I had so many people wonder at, uh, in my ministry. They would come to me, Pastor, I I'm worried that this has happened in my life, that I've somehow committed the unpardonable sin. And so I began to look at scriptures and think to myself, you know, for something to be so important, as having never been able or to be able to be redeemed or forgiven, uh, it's interesting to me that not one time does Paul the Apostle mention this. Yet Paul the Apostle is the Apostle to the Gentiles. He gave us 14 of the 27 New Testament books by the leading of the Holy Spirit, if you count Hebrews, and I do. So, so he wrote those, and yet not one time to the church does Paul say, you better be careful of this thing. Not once. Which leads me to believe the only time it's mentioned is during the life of Jesus, particularly concerning the work that he is doing, being attributed as having been done by the power of Satan rather than the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I say to you, I don't believe the unpardonable sin can be committed today. It has to have Jesus on the earth doing the work of the Holy Spirit and someone accusing that power as being from Satan and not from the Holy Spirit. It's the only time it's in the scripture. But I say to you that in order to be blasphemed and sinned against, he is not only a person, he is God. The third person of the Trinity, the divine Trinity, the Godhead. Well then secondly, let us recognize his power. We talked a little bit about his power. We said he is not a force, but he is forceful. He, is, he has much power. For this, let's go to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. Would you look over there with me for just a moment? The book of Acts chapter number 1. Now the Bible tells us in verse number 8, and again, this is a fairly familiar text to most, verse number 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So you'll have power as a result of the Holy Spirit, the helper being with you. This, this power is the word dunamis in the Greek. We have a word today that we get from the same root word, and the word is dynamite. And it's referring to this explosiveness. Literally, the word dunamis means miraculous power. The power to do miracles. Now, when we think about miracles, we think of that which cannot be explained. Would you agree? So we're talking about power that is so awesome that we can't even explain it. It's dunamis. It's a, it's a miracle working type power. And the Bible says it comes with the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, we're going to get more in detail about the Spirit and His dwelling in us and how that differs, but bear with me just a moment as we talk about this, this power. Someone has said, and I like the saying, that David, when he approached Goliath, he did not need to know the strength of the giant. Because he knew the strength of his God. Amen. So it's important for us to realize the kind of power this helper has. What can God do? Well, God can do anything. What can the Holy Spirit? He can do anything. It doesn't mean he will do it. It means he can do it. Amen? Dunamis. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, reads this way. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. 
Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went, went out through all the surrounding region. You remember the temptation of Jesus? Matthew 4 and Luke chapter 4 deal with the temptation of Jesus. You might remember that when he was finished, he was very, very weak. He was weak already. He had been fasting 40 days in the desert. And the devil will always attempt to, uh, to get to you when you are at your weakest. Just keep that in mind. Sometimes he'll not approach you when you have been well rested and you've been in the word and, and you're doing all, but you let him get you fatigued, you let him get you wore down and weak and all of a sudden then boom, he'll get you and that's what he was trying to do with Jesus. He was unsuccessful but nonetheless it wore Jesus physically out and the Bible says he returned, how did he return? In the power of the Spirit. Let me just say to you this, if you've never prayed this before, you probably will, and most of you probably have. There will be times in your life when all you can do is pray something that sounds like this. Lord, I don't have the strength to do this. You got to help me. You got to help me. You got to help me. I can't tell you how many times I've talked with people who have said to me after the loss of a loved one, something like, I don't know what people without the Lord do. I don't know. I have done funerals for people who do not know the Lord and, and boy, they handle it a lot differently than people who know the Lord. And so I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, sometimes you need to just rely on the power of the Holy Spirit of God. He has it there for us. Luke chapter 24 and verse 49, Jesus said, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Now this is interesting and we're going to talk more about it because the Holy Spirit worked differently in the Old Testament than he does in the New Testament. Even though he is God and unchanging, his methods change throughout time. And so we learn he is different in the old than in the new. But here Jesus says to his disciples, listen, you're not going to be able to do what it is I want you to do without the Holy Spirit being involved in it. Now I want you to catch that for just a minute because the truth of the matter is a lot of Christians today look at themselves and they look at opportunities to serve and they say, I cannot do that. And they never try. But most of the time, when you realize you cannot do it, that's the time you have to turn to God and say, Okay, God, with you, we can do this. And with that dependency, He gets the honor and the glory out of it. Can I get an uh-huh? So how do we go about living in the power of the Spirit? John chapter 7 and verse 38 and 39. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus said this, wait a minute, hey, you're a believer? You, you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? You've asked Jesus to be your Savior? Let me tell you something, out of you is going to flow rivers of living water. Now the question is this, is it flowing? And if it's not, why isn't it? Something has dammed up the stream. Something has, has blocked off the flow. And we need to get whatever it is out of the way and let the Holy Spirit live through us. Would you agree to that? So how do you do that? How do you live in the power of the Spirit? I think that's probably a series on its own. But I want to give you four simple little steps. And they'll come up on the PowerPoint. You can write them in if you'd like concerning this. How do I live in the power? Number one, possess the Spirit. Now the way you possess the Spirit, Romans tells us this, and we'll look in more detail throughout our series, but um, you possess the Spirit. How do you do that? You ask Jesus to be your Savior. And then He moves in. And He lives within us. He indwells us. Again, we'll go into more detail. Number two is you progress in the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5 and verse, verse 16 says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. You'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Galatians chapter uh, 4 and verse number 6 reads this way. And because you are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So if we possess the spirit, it means we've asked Jesus to be our savior and he has moved in. If we progress in the spirit, it means we've decided to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. That, that means we're going to grow in Him. We're going to be obedient to Him. 
Number three is we permit the Spirit to transform us. We permit the Spirit to transform us. Let me show you a verse of Scripture, important verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. A couple of passages or a couple of verses here in this passage. Verse 17 reads this way. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. Did you catch that? We all are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So one of the things the Spirit of God does in us is He works to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. We're being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So that means literally sometimes in your life he's going to go about knocking off some stuff like a sculptor would do with a big old piece of, of uh, stone, if you will. And he's just going to chip away stuff that doesn't look like Jesus. And sometimes it's painful. Can I get an uh-huh? It is. We don't particularly like, uh, let me say it this way, we don't like change. We don't like for God to interrupt our life. And yet the Christian life, if you're going to walk in the Spirit, it's a constant interruption. Where he steps in and says, wait a minute, that's not like it's supposed to be. Let's work on that. Let's do something with that. And we need not be resistant to it. I think that's an important point uh, we'll talk about. So we need to permit the Spirit. Uh, that's a yielding to the Spirit of God, by the way. And you need to yield to Him. He's not going to force Himself upon you. You've got to yield to Him. Number four on the list of how to walk in His power, how to live in His power, is pray through the Spirit. Pray through the Spirit. Praying in the Spirit or through the Spirit. Romans chapter 8 verse 26. Likewise the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now there are some people who take that verse of Scripture and they say, You see preacher, there is a verse of Scripture that talks about praying in tongues. And I say to you that is not what it teaches. You say, how do you know that preacher? Because it says it cannot be uttered. And if you will look that up, look up the origin of the term that's used, it literally means that when the Holy Spirit prays for you, He prays for you in such a way concerning things you cannot even make a sound over. Amen. You can't mumble it, you can't mutter it, you can't do anything. You have nothing to pray. There are times in our lives when we face such difficulty and heartache, we go before God, have you ever been there? And you say, God, I don't even know where to begin. I don't know what to ask for. I don't know what to do. I need the Spirit of God to pray on my behalf. And the Bible says He will. Amen. He will. And He'll do it in a way that you can't do anything, you can't even utter it concerning it. So pray in the Spirit or through the Spirit. Number three on our list, and if you're taking notes along the way here, we're talking about recognizing God, the reality of the Holy Spirit, the third person of God. And uh, we have mentioned so far recognizing His person, recognizing His power. Let me talk about recognizing His presence for just a minute. Now, if I've lost you so far, uh, try to tune back in for a minute, okay? Uh, because this, this is pretty important stuff. And I, I want to show it to you. And there's a lot of confusion today over some things that we want to try to set straight concerning the Scriptures. So, Acts chapter 2 and verse number 1. Look there with me if you would, please. Acts 2 and verse 1. If you're there, say, I'm there. Yeah. The person next to you is sleeping, say, they're sleeping. <laughs> oh, man. They done ratted you out, didn't they? How would you do that? Acts chapter 2 and verse number, they're being your helper. Amen. Acts chapter 2 verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven. Now notice this. As of a rushing mighty wind. What did we call our study on the Holy Spirit? It's pneumatology. What does the word pneuma mean? It refers to the wind or the breath of God. If your wind is uh, uh, giving you difficulties, if you have, have congestion in your lungs and you cannot breathe, you call that uh, pneumonia. It's the, same, it's the same type of a word as the root word, referring to the wind or the breath of God. And so God now has breathed out His Spirit, and He arrives on the day of Pentecost. Now, there are a lot of people who look at this and they say, Now, preacher, is this the beginning of the church or the empowering of the church? And that's a big debate today. 
And not that it's going to uh, cause you to wonder which restaurant to go to for lunch today, but I'm going to share it with you anyhow. And, and that the fact of the matter is, I believe it's the empowering of the church. I think Jesus started the church, and, and, and now it is being empowered by the helper. The helper has arrived. He's not been on the scene. We're going to talk about that. But here he comes, and, and he arrives at this time, empowering the church. And the Bible tells us that there is this awesome manifestation of his coming. That, that it's like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the whole house where they were sitting. And, and the Bible says, Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And that's an interesting phrase. So some people use this and they say, You see, the speaking of tongues, the unknown tongue, dates back to the origin of the day of Pentecost. That is incorrect. They spoke with other tongues. Look at verse 5. And they were dwelling, they, excuse me, and there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. That is the tongues of the day of Pentecost. Let's make it very clear. Peter got up to preach and all of the people that were gathered from all of these nations, as he preached to them, they all heard in their mother tongue. Somebody has said it was probably more a gift of hearing than of speaking. That is the gift on the day of Pentecost. Do not confuse that with what Paul talks about over to the church of Corinth. A lot of people do. They say, well, you see that that was manifest. No, no, you take a look at the text and you see for yourself that the gift was a gift of hearing. They heard their, in their own language as the Spirit of God moved. That's a, a tremendous thing. What was the purpose of it? It got the gospel into all of those regions without the first language school class having to be attended. Amen? Amen? So the Bible talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit at this particular time. So where had he been and what was going on concerning the work of the Holy Spirit? Let me just do a little bit of background with you. First of all, uh, the, uh, uh, let, let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. Would you do that with me for a moment? Genesis chapter 1. Now we're going to come back to uh, Acts, so don't lose your place there. Set your marker. Genesis chapter 1. I don't know how many of you begin reading your Bible uh, each year or maybe for the first time and you go back to Genesis and you start there. I've encouraged you before not to start in Genesis if you're just starting to read your Bible. Uh, it's a good thing uh, maybe to start with the Gospel of John. We've talked about that. Uh, but if you did start in the book of Genesis and for many years that's the way I did it. I liked it from the beginning to the end. Uh, and uh, uh, you don't get very far before you meet the Holy Spirit. Verse 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God hovering on the waters. Now that's an interesting appearance. Matter of fact, the Bible tells us that he had a great part in creation. Psalm 33 and verse 6 reads this way, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. What is the breath of God? It is the Spirit of God. Genesis 2 and verse 7 talks about the creation of man. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and did what? Breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. So it was the Spirit of God that gave life to man. That gave life to man. So we see him appearing throughout the scriptures. Someone has said, well the major difference in the Old Testament uh, Spirit of God and the New Testament Spirit of God is that in the Old Testament the Holy Spirit came upon people and left but in the New Testament he indwells them. As a matter of fact a good study would show you that in the Old Testament he did come upon and he also indwelled but he did leave. In the New Testament you would find that not only does he indwell but he also comes upon. So the major difference between the Old Testament 
pneumatology and the New Testament pneumatology is not just the differences as far as his dwelling because in the Old Testament he would leave. You remember what the psalmist prayed in Psalm 51 when he had sinned against God? He said, take thou not or take not thy Holy Spirit from me because the Holy Spirit would leave. In the New Covenant, in the New Testament, and we'll study this in our series a little bit more in depth, Jesus said, I'm going to give you this comforter, I'm going to give you the Spirit of God, and He will never leave you. He will abide with you forever. Forever. But there's another difference, and it's a major one. And it's one that today I think we're not paying a lot of attention to. And the difference is that in the Old Testament there was no church. And in the New Testament the Holy Spirit is the administrator of the church. Now that plays a very important role and it needs to be emphasized in our study of the Holy Spirit. How he goes about that. The gifts of the Spirit. How he goes about administering the church that here is, is in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we might say, and I think it's, I think it's accurate, I, I did quite a bit of study on this before I came to this conclusion. In the Old Testament, do you remember when God met with Moses and he said, Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to build a worship center. It's going to be a, um, a portable thing. It'll have a, uh, we'll call it the tabernacle, and it'll be made of some uh, posts and some tents and, and some little uh, sockets, and, and you build it this way. It's going to have this kind of furniture in it, and this is going to be my way of meeting with you. Now, in the very center of it, you're going to have this thing, this little area, this little room called the Holy of Holies. And inside that, you're going to place the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant, there will be this seat called the Mercy Seat. And once a year, you're going to, be, you're going to bring blood in to the Mercy Seat. And you're going to sprinkle blood on the seat, and that will be on the Day of Atonement. And the sins of the people will be rolled forward for a year. Well, something happened. When Moses built the tabernacle just according to the fashion God said, and he was dedicating the tabernacle, the Bible tells us that a cloud came down and dwelt on the mercy seat. And the glory of the Lord, it was called, was so great that no one could enter the tabernacle. The same thing happened when the tabernacle moved into, if you will, Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was basically the tabernacle in a fixed location. It was grand, man. I mean, it was made unbelievable. God did some remarkable things. Solomon did some remarkable things with the tabernacle. But inside was the Holy of Holies. Inside that, the Ark of the Covenant. On top of that, the Shekinah cloud of glory. What does the word Shekinah mean? It referred to a dwelling or a settling. It is the dwelling of the Spirit of God with man. It's interesting to me that uh, man did not desire to dwell with God. God desired to dwell with man. You see, there is nothing in us that seeks him out. But he seeks us out. Yes, hallelujah. And the Holy Spirit is used in that, in that way. So then Solomon's temple, at the dedication of the temple, what happened? The Shekinah cloud of glory came down and filled the temple, and the filling was so great that no one could enter the temple. No one. After the destruction of the temple, the Bible tells us that the glory of God, the Shekinah cloud, was actually in Zerubbabel's temple, the rebuilt temple. It was there. But then something happens in the Old Testament. Now bear with me. Let me take you there. Ezekiel has a vision. And the vision that Ezekiel has is the departing of the glory of God. The departing of the Shekinah cloud of glory from the temple into heaven. And this becomes interesting. The Bible tells us in Ezekiel... Uh, let's go down to Ezekiel 9 and verse number 3. Now the glory of, of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed with linen who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. Okay, So he moves off of the mercy seat. Ezekiel 10 and verse 18 and 19. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. When they went out, 
The wheels were beside them, and they stood at the door on the east side, or on the east gate of the Lord's house. And the glory of the God of Israel was above them. So he keeps moving upward and away. And then finally, in Ezekiel 11 and verse 22, So the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the Lord of Israel was high above them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain, which is on the east side of the city. Then the Spirit took me up and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea to those in captivity and the vision that I had seen went up from me. So the Spirit of God, the dwelling of God in the Shekinah cloud of glory goes up. By the time we end the Old Testament in Malachi, the Spirit of God did not dwell with man the way that he had for so very long. Then we have this little period of time some 400 years past called the silent years. It's between the Testaments between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew. During that time, we know very little about anything that is going on other than to say that somehow God used that time to promote and to proclaim the Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming of Jesus. The first time we see the Spirit of God again after the departing of the temple, the first time we see Him is in relation to John the Baptist in the book of Luke. When the Bible tells us that John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. After that, we have the Holy Spirit mentioned in Matthew chapter 1 that came upon Mary and the child that would be born was of the Holy Spirit. So we have again the working of the Holy Spirit. But we do not have his empowering of the church until we come to Acts chapter 2. We have the working of the Holy Spirit. He works through, through Jesus Christ. Remember that when Jesus did a work, he did it in the power of the Spirit of God. And the blasphemy against the Spirit was to say he was doing it out of the work of the devil, out of the power of the devil. So we have the Holy Spirit is alive and well, just not in the sense that we know him today, empowering the church and indwelling his people, not until the day of Pentecost came. So what about in the saved person's heart? Romans chapter 8 and verse number 9. Let's take a look there if you would please. But you are not in the flesh but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now we're talking about the indwelling. When you trust Christ as your savior, the Holy Spirit of God moves in. If you're saved, you possess the spirit. We talked about that earlier. You possess the spirit. And by the way, you receive... All of the Holy Spirit there is to receive at that very moment. Amen. The filling of the Holy Spirit is not when you get more spirit. Are you listening to me? You can't get any more spirit. It's when he gets more of you. That's the difference. That's the it's like walking into your home. Let's say you invite a guest over to your house today for dinner and you have that room. But you in a hurry threw everything in. It might be a closet. It might be a spare bedroom. It's somewhere. And you got the door shut. And you won't let anybody in. Don't go in there. And you carefully direct them to where the restroom is so they don't open that door. You don't want them to go in there. They may be completely and totally in your house. But they don't have access to everything in your house. The Holy Spirit moves into you when he indwells you, when you get saved. But you've not necessarily given him a master key and access to every room of your house. That's when the filling takes place. There's a difference. We'll go into more detail of that another time in our series. So if you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. Now it goes on. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So he doesn't leave the believer. And if he does leave the believer, there's no way you can claim to be a believer. Amen? Amen? So the two do not go together. But the Bible says that's not the way it works. So verse number 10. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead 
will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. We're supposed to be living something called a spirit life. That's the life of the Holy Spirit, the resurrected life. The Bible says the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. Amen. And we sing that song, but I often wonder if we know what that means. The Holy Spirit of God dwelling. The Shekinah cloud, if you will, but within us. Within us. And then last of all, and many people said, amen, preacher. Let's... <laughs> Finish up Pneumatology 101. We need to recognize his pull. His pull. I believe this. I think that um, this is our first encounter with the Holy Spirit. I don't mean this service, although it may be for you. But I mean the first time we encounter the Holy Spirit, it usually involves the tug or the pull. The drawing. What is that? Someone might ask. In Acts chapter 2, Peter has preached. Peter begins to talk about Jesus and who he was and who he is. Therefore let all the house, verse 36 says in Acts chapter 2, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Amen. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what? shall we do? What shall we do? Then Peter said, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. They were cut to the heart. That's the Holy Spirit doing His work. The Bible tells us, John chapter 6 and verse 44. No one can come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. Do you remember when you were drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ? You remember when the message that day spoke to your heart or when a person was talking to you about who Jesus was and your heart began to just flip flop inside and, and all of a sudden you realized that you needed that Savior and you needed to do something or you were going to wind up spending eternity in hell or you needed to respond to this love. What manner of love is this that God has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God? What is this that he has done for us? When asked how much he loved us, one plaque said he stretched out his arms and he said this much and he died you respond to the working of the Holy Spirit of God in you when he draws you to him conviction and awakening are the first encounters with the Holy Spirit the Bible said uh, when he has come John 16 verse number 8 when he has come he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they do not believe in me of righteousness because I go to my father and you see me no more of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged I still have many things to say to you Jesus said but you cannot bear them now however when he the spirit of truth has come he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own authority but whatever he hears he will speak and he will tell you things to come he will glorify me for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you one of the things the Spirit of God does and it's so interesting because even in preparation for studying to talk about the Holy Spirit he keeps pointing us back to Jesus that's what he does it's all about Jesus listen to what he did for you he will pull you and he will tug you now people handle that tug and that pull differently. There's a group in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen was preaching concerning who Jesus was that handled it quite differently. Beginning in verse 51 and reading just a couple of verses he said, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Verse 54 says, When they heard these things they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. So how do people handle this tug? What do they do with this pull? Some people respond and trust Jesus as their Savior. Other people resist and they become angry and bitter. They will say things like, what gives you the right to call me a sinner? 
Who do you think you are? You think you're more righteous than anybody else? And they miss it because they don't receive what the Holy Spirit is trying to tell them. It's all about Jesus forgiving us of our sin. It's all about his giving us eternal life. So what will you do with the tug? What will you do with the pull? Sometimes we've been saved and he calls us to greater service. It's also a tug, a pull. Sometimes he'll lead you to unite with a church or he'll lead you to do something in regard to guiding you to witness on his behalf. So I ask you not to miss the leadings of the Holy Spirit of God. Be sensitive to him. Pay attention to him. Respond to him. Yield. Yield to him. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you today and we thank you for your word. And Lord, I know that I've talked about a lot of things this morning. God, your people have been so very attentive. And I just thank you so much for this great church and the people you've assembled here. And Lord, perhaps now, perhaps at this very moment, the Holy Spirit of God is tugging and pulling at someone's heart. Maybe he's telling them that there is a need in their life to trust Jesus as their Savior. I pray, God, that the word today will be mixed with faith. And I pray today, God, that they'll respond in a manner that they come to know you as their personal Savior. And Lord, there may be others. Others who are already saved, but the Holy Spirit has begun to tug and pull at them as their teacher, as their guide. Lord, maybe there are other decisions we need to make. And maybe today our prayer, Lord, may sound something like this. Dear Holy Spirit, I want to yield to you. I want you to guide me in my life. I want to walk in the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name, while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, the invitation is open. If you have a need you'd like to pray about, maybe somebody God's laid on your heart to pray for, you respond as the Lord leads. If you're here today and you want to find out more about how to be born again, you can come and let us know. Just tell us, Pastor, I'd like to know more about how to be saved. Otherwise, we're just going to let you pray and talk things over with the Lord where you are, just at the altar. So would you stand with me, please, if you're able?